Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to the Anthro Alert Podcast, where we take our live show from Minnesota Radio and publish it for you as a podcast for you to listen to at your convenience, whether you're sitting at home, driving in a car, or you somehow stumbled upon this and you don't know where you're at, you're going to listen to Anthro Alert, and it's about anthropology, and it's super cool, so I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Bulls. It's Friday afternoon, 3 o'clock. And you're listening to Anthro Alert on Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and on the TuneIn app. You can learn more at BullsRadio.org. Like I said, this is Anthro Alert. We're every Friday at 3 p.m. And this is a show simply about anthropology and why it matters. Each week, we'll discuss how anthropology is relevant, and over time, we feature various guests from the Department of Anthropology here at USF to discuss the research and have them weigh in on everyday topics or current events. <coughs> we believe that this is a good opportunity for us as anthropologists and as students of anthropology to better connect with the USF community and to raise awareness of the value of an anthropological perspective. Uh, just like every week, we like to preface our show with the disclaimer that the statements that we make and the opinions that we express here on Anthro Alert are ours and ours alone and do not necessarily uh, represent uh, the discipline of anthropology, the USF Anthropology Department, USF as a university, or student government. <coughs> or, or the Bonobo community. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and the Bonobos. And I am Spencer, and you just heard from my co-host, Renee. Hello, good evening, beautiful day in Tampa. Yes, and we're we're all finally back in Tampa after a bit of chaos and hectic week. Yeah, I I evacuated um, right away. Yes, and we have a special guest this afternoon, Katie Shakur. Hello, Katie. Hi, thanks for having me. Katie, did you did you evacuate last week? I did evacuate. Yeah. I wasn't going to mess with the hurricane. I I stayed here and. Held down the fort. I wrote it out. <laughs> it wasn't so. It wasn't so bad. But yeah, I mean, it probably wasn't a bad idea to get out either. <clears throat> yeah, but you survived, and that's that's all that matters, right? I did. I boarded up my windows and had non-perishables and water, and just wrote it out with board games and books. So it wasn't so bad. But the heat got after. It, it got real old after not having power for about five days. So, but we're all back. We're all safe. We're ready to go. For another episode of Anthro Alert. <clears throat> so, like I said, Katie's joining us in the studio today. She's a PhD student here in the Department of Anthropology. She is a historical archaeologist and focuses particularly on Irish archaeology. She has been for the past nine or ten years, so we're going to talk to her about that. But her current research explores uh, how communities react to disasters through uh, through time and how heritage is constructed with regards to disasters. And so we're going to have her break that down a little bit for us uh, later on in the show and, and explain, um, you know, the connections there between heritage and disasters and how they affect communities. So we're just going to hop right into the conversation. Um, Katie, can you explain to us a little bit about uh, Irish archaeology and, and the, you know, how, you know, the archaeology surrounding that particular geographic location and sort of how you got involved with that in the first place? Yeah, I can just start with it was kind of the start of my archaeology career in general. I was in undergrad at the University of Notre Dame, 
and there was a field school that was exploring Irish American uh, archaeology and Irish American immigrants. And from that, I was able to, a professor helped me go study abroad and do research in Ireland to kind of get the other perspective. So I was trying to understand what daily life was like for people back in the 17 and 1800s. And um, that's still an integral part of my uh, research and archaeology fieldwork. So I went to Dublin and learned all about the archives, did test excavations, um, talked with locals about their archaeology, and just got a well, um, well-versed understanding in Irish archaeology and then des- wanted to continue, and so I've been doing it ever since. So what kind of uh, project have you worked on in, in Dublin for those nine, ten years that you've been doing this? So I actually have a master's from University College Dublin, and Mm. for my master's thesis, I was looking at a particular community um, where they have slate quarries and just looked at the archaeology around them and how they became known as slate quarry people, what they prioritized and remembered from the past and what stories they would pass on to their children, and see how they preserved the past in different ways. So a lot of it has to do with the more recent past um, based on how communities remember and how oral history is passed on. Mm -hmm. So I would go and talk to people about um, like a tomb that was not far or a cemetery, a historic cemetery, and just hear what was important to them, why they maintained this old site, and understand how they passed that knowledge on to their children, whether Mm -hmm. it was through school or through conversations around the dinner table, um, but just understanding what about the past was important to people today. Hmm. So I guess that's where you bring in that historical, archaeological perspective. Yeah, yeah. and mm-hmm. I've been to some sites in Ireland, like Newgrange. It's thousands of years old, mm-hmm. and people do like to visit it. Irish people like to visit it, but they don't have that personal connection with the past as mm-hmm. much. When it's a more recent past, um, you can see people passing stories on to their mm-hmm. to the next generation, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's about visiting the site as a kid, watching contemporary druids visit a site and understanding how um, certain celebrations happen with the the moon and um, the solstice and the sun. So there are just different ways that I could see how archaeology was integrated into contemporary life, and Hmm. a lot of that was more of the recent past, so post-1700. That's really interesting. So um, along with looking at historical archaeology, you also say you focus on coastal or island archaeology, which I guess goes hand-in-hand with your Irish archaeology focus. Um, So is there anything unique um, in looking at coasts or or islands from an archaeological perspective, maybe from just archaeology in general? Yeah, so Ireland itself is an island, but I also right now work on smaller islands um, off the coast of Ireland. So when you're working on an island or along the coast, you're, you have to think about the ocean and the sea and how that will impact the site or people's perspectives about the world. Um, they're often uh, fishing for a livelihood, and that will impact your, the artifacts you find. I also have dealt a lot with the fact that people would throw their trash into the ocean instead of burying it like you would if you were on the mainland. Um, so you have a different type of... Uh, I'm not finding as many artifacts as I would find if I were in the middle of 
um, Georgia or something like that, mm-hmm. um, based on where people are depositing their old material culture. Mm. So does that mean, Katie, that you had to uh, learn how to scuba dive? So scuba diving is part of archaeology. You could do underwater archaeology, but I have avoided that. (laughs) Um, But coastal archaeology and island archaeology often does scuba dive if you're a scientific diver, and you can do underwater archaeology, recover old ship, uh, explore shipwrecks, things like that. Hmm. That sounds neat. (laughs) (laughs) That that sounds very neat. Um, We could probably do a... A whole show on underwater archaeology. One Should day. try to get someone on. Does anybody in the department do Florida FPAN? People from okay. Florida Public Archaeology Network here at USF do underwater archaeology. Hmm. That seems like a whole nother like level of things to. <laughs> I don't know. That seems like a, taking archaeology like archaeology and just making it a lot more complicated than what it already is. Yeah, it's a whole <laughs> different set of uh, like skills logistics. and just like yeah. Yeah, definitely. So so in uh, some of the materials that you provided us ahead of time to help us better understand what you do, you described something multi-scalar heritage construction. So, so <laughs> th- there were a lot of words there. Can you break that down for us, please? Yeah, it's a bit jargony, but basically multi-scalar heritage construction is looking at a lot of different levels um, for heritage. So if you have your local heritage, which would be in a small village or a town and with your family, that's going to be different than a more regional heritage. So we can compare Tampa heritage and your family heritage, if you grew up in Ybor or something, to Florida heritage, which is going to be different. You're going to have a different, um, you're going to have new things brought into that, different priorities based on what the state as a whole feels like they need to preserve for all of Florida rather than just the people in Ybor. And then you could get into national um, levels of heritage. So for the United States, what does the United States want to preserve and protect and talk about in terms of the past and things that we highlight to each other and also other nations as something that makes us special? So I do that in Ireland. (laughs) All right. That sounds... That sounds great. I mean, heritage is a really complex issue, so looking at it from, or not an issue, but just like, just kind of a set of questions that are around heritage is really complex, so looking at it from all those different, I guess, uh, rings, you know, you you kind of like branch out as you're looking at those questions, so um, that's really interesting. And we're going to take a quick music break, then we come back, we're going to talk about Katie's most recent research and what she plans to do for her dissertation. Hey, Bulls, we're back listening to Anthro Alert. We're going to hop right back into the conversation just right after this message from our sponsors. Have you ever wanted to go to the USF Botanical Gardens but didn't know what to do there? Connect with the Botanical Gardens Club and we will show you the way. The Botanical Gardens Club volunteers at the gardens, grows vegetables each semester, and has recyclable arts and craft projects. If you want to make it to any of those exciting events, come to our monthly socials. Join us on BullSync and Facebook or email usfbgc at gmail.com. Again, that is usfbgc at gmail.com to receive updates on all of our events. All right, and you're listening to Bulls Radio, WSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, uh, 1620 AM on campus and always streaming worldwide at tunein.com and on the TuneIn app. Now, we're going to jump back into our conversation with Katie talking about Irish archaeology and historical archaeology, community archaeology. 
we're going to um, <coughs> dive into her most recent research. So, Katie, in your sort of bio that you supplied us um, for the show, you talked about communities reacting to disaster through time and how um, heritage is constructed with regards to disaster. Can you kind of unpack that statement a little bit and, and elaborate on, on what you're looking at there? Yeah, so anthropologists have been studying disaster for, for a while. Um, when you talk about an earthquake or Katrina or famine, anthropologists are examining those big life changes for communities. Uh, but one of the things that I'm starting to explore is anthropology of the famine in Ireland and the archaeology of that mm -hmm. and it wasn't a topic discussed in Ireland until the recent um, past like the last 20 years mm -hmm. it, was it was just like a touchy subject it was of? touchy yeah. um, they you have a, a past with a complicated history with England mm -hmm. so people were weren't really talking about it but more recently archaeologists were looking at famine era houses um, so I got into a project where I was exploring island archaeology, um, small fishing villages on two islands off the coast of Galway, and they're called Inish Shark and Inish Boffin. And I was looking at the historic fishing villages, what life was like for these peasant fisher farmers who couldn't read, couldn't write, had to pay landlords um, rent every month. And then they experienced the famine. And actually it was a series of famines. Mm -hmm. So trying to understand how they reacted to that in these small communities of less than a 1,000 people um, is something I started exploring, looking into the research on what did they do in the past and what, how can we understand our, through the archaeological record what their reactions were to this life-changing event where you had over a million people die and over a million people migrate. Mm -hmm. um, from Ireland. So exploring those reactions um, on a small scale, when we talk about multi-scalar, on a small scale on these islands, but then also looking at maybe in the region of mm -hmm. um, the western region of Ireland got hit hardest with the famine. So looking at those reactions and then comparing them to the national reactions mm -hmm. um, to the famine and understanding what the differences were and how it's manifest um, in the literature, on the ground, through the archaeology. So, what, what kind of uh, what kind of things are you finding in the archaeology on, like maybe how you said, like how they're how they adapted to the famine, or um, you know, um, kind of continued to live through the famine? And then, how do you find that you know uh, this archaeology and the famine? How do you think it's going to then contribute now to you know current uh, current um, Irish heritage and um, you know? kind of elaborating on these, of you know, tragic events that happened in, in their past. Yeah, so when we go through and do archaeology of, of something like the famine, and for archaeology I always use we because you can't do an excavation by yourself because it's, it's manual labor and mm -hmm. you, you need someone to write down everything while you're excavating it. <laughs> right, so right. Um, you can do something as simple as just observing the change in the village layout through a walking survey. So walking around, you see the old village. You can look at the historic maps and understand this is a pre-famine house. And then you can look at, oh, this house over here, that's not on the pre-famine map. That's on the post-famine map. So the village expanded out. They built different houses because the government was pushing money into um, rural Ireland to help boost their way of life, to 
give people more space, more farming land. Mm -hmm. um, then we can also see in the archaeological record the archaeological record when we're excavating we see different types of material culture after the famine people had more money after the famine not because they were um necessarily earning more for their for their fishing or something but their families were spread out all over the world now because they moved to america australia england and send money sending money back to ireland as mm -hmm. like a gift mm -hmm. um to their parents or something like that so you can see different um, material goods based on the fact that the people on these islands and in rural Ireland had more resources in general. So based on, based off of what assumptions can you tell through the material culture that um, certain families had more money? Um, like if a family has a one-story house versus a two-story house, okay. the two-story house costs more to make. Sure, yeah. Um, things like that or the quality mm -hmm. of the ceramics that they had in their mm -hmm. trash pile. So is there some way that you could find out which families had um, members moving to the U.S. or different countries? Yeah, there are lots of different – since this is historical archaeology, we're lucky that we have some historical documents okay. to help us mm -hmm. out. So there are ship manifest records where people had to sign in um, saying where they were from, and then the ship was going from a specific place to um, North America, for mm -hmm. example. So we can trace those people through the historical records. We also have um, certain societies, like the Quakers, who are really um, interested in famine relief. So they would document sometimes who they were giving money to, who they were sending to different parts of the world. So we have ways to understand. Mm -hmm. And then we also have oral history. Mm -hmm. Families pass on this information through letters or um, stories that they tell. And we use that to our advantage, too, to trace where people were going in the past, where their families went, what kind of connections they had all around the world. Have you talked to any um, families recently about, um, you know, any families that have oral history stories that they still continue to tell to younger generations? And, you know, how are these famine events talked about now uh, um, among the Irish population and community? Yeah, so for a while, Irish people were weren't really talking about the famine. It wasn't part of their major story like when you look at the 100 anniversary 100 year anniversary of the famine there was a very small commemoration but since enough time has passed i think since enough time has passed people are starting to ask questions of their grandparents about oh i know like your parents would have lived through the famine what what does that mean what did you hear about when you're growing up so they're starting to document that more and more and hear more about more details than the famine happened a lot of people suffered um, so there are people who are going through and documenting their family history and then talking to those people. It's wonderful that they share that with me, um, and then I share resources with them about my research and what I've learned researching the famine in Ireland. Hmm. Uh, Katie, how does the archaeological study of disaster tie in with uh, community archaeology? Yeah, so community archaeology is basically involving the community in the process of in the research process it has lots of different scales uh, you could be completely grassroots archaeology with the community or it could be more of a consulting thing so there's a lot of different ways you can incorporate the community and archaeology of disaster this is their heritage um, this is heritage this is the past that was important to these people it was their families impacted by this disaster so one thing that I'm working towards is 
sharing this information with the local community whose past I'm researching, getting to share that information, give them the resources to then understand their past, rather than a lot of academics, you hear the story of the ivory tower, Mm -hmm. sitting on top of this tower, not disseminating information with local people. So by incorporating the local people into the archaeology, whether it's um, asking them to help to come look at artifacts and tell me what they are, or helping them, or having them help me pick a site out to excavate, working with those people to understand that past, and sharing with them my research questions and formulating research questions with them around the famine is one way that they get the heritage in their hands. They get to help construct our understanding of the past, and they can pass that on to future generations. Have you found um, in doing this research that um, community members or you know some of your research partners are they receptive in in he- helping you either find a site or you know kind of uh, bounce off some some research questions or maybe they guide you in a different direction? Uh, are they fairly receptive to to this research and you know learning more about what you're working on? Yeah, the community's been really open and welcoming. They are really invested in their past. They're an island community that is less than 200 people. Um, They really do, they're close-knit, but they love their past. They love their home. They love being islanders. And they've been, they share stories with me. They take me to different sites around the island to show me what might be of interest. They help me formulate research questions. And I see myself as an archaeologist who's trained with a special skill. But I can share those skills with the community. And it's been a really good back and forth. Um, They talk to me about certain artifacts that I might not know the meaning of because I'm not a fisherman. And so talking to people who fish consistently, they can share that knowledge with me, and then I'll share other knowledge with them, like I happen to know a lot about historical ceramics. So it's this back and forth, and the community has been really receptive. What are some of those research questions that they've helped you further develop? Um, Some of the research questions that they... They showed an interest in understanding certain parts of the island. So an old village that wasn't really known much about, they pointed it out to me. We went and took a walking tour of it, and then we were able to say, oh, let's see, what's, what's in this part? Why is this village different than that other village? Why is this one village um, here when that, that other village is no longer occupied? So that was one of the questions they helped me formulate um, just by showing me more about the island, the island that they have known their entire lives. So does that, um, you know, I, I guess if you're if you're working with the community, which is an important part of this research, it also adds another layer of, of complexity sometimes in working with the, the community. Um, you know, also if they lead you in a direction maybe that's, maybe very off track of what you're originally working on so have you encountered any of those issues and how do you balance what questions you're originally wanting to ask with what interests the community yeah logistically it's it it's you have to spend more time doing community archaeology than you would archaeology where the community is not involved Mm um and i should say most projects have some level, most projects around um, the U.S. and around the world have some level of community archaeology. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we, we had this project where we wanted the local school kids to come help us excavate so that they could experience their past mm-hmm. in their hands. 
logistically, that was a bit of a challenge. Mm -hmm. It took extra planning to try and figure out, okay, what site would be good for children to get to? Mm -hmm. What site would be good for visitors to get to? If you're on this island and you don't have, like, bathroom facilities for little kids, that's an issue. So ordering a porta potty Mm -hmm. and getting it delivered to an island off the coast of Ireland, so it was a little difficult. So things like that you have to pre-plan way more Mm. um, than getting a bunch of archaeologists to go camp in tents and, you know, live off the grid for a bit. Right. And then that did impact our research questions because we had to say, okay, the kids can only get to these sites on foot safely. Mm-hmm. Well, these other sites might be interesting too, but we need to focus on these sites because we want to make sure the community has a part in understanding their past. How, how important is the safety of children? I mean, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't they toughen up a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> Especially island children. It's uh, very useful. They need to learn eventually. Yeah. <laughs> Checking around. Uh, so what? speaking of, I guess, um, you know, getting to these places safely in the island, what's kind of the, the topography of, of the island you're working on? So to get to this, I'll just tell you about how we get to the island in general okay, and what it's yep. like. So you fly into either Dublin or Shannon, the two main international airports, and then you take a bus to this through Galway into this tiny village called Clagan. And from Clagan, you have to take a ferry to um, five miles off the coast. Mm. And if the winter storm is really bad, you can't always go to that island. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you're reliant on the sea being calm enough and in the summer, it's always calm. And then um, if we're on the main island with people, there are people living on one island, and there's an island that was evacuated a while ago. So if you're on the island with people, great. They have a small shop, but you still need to do grocery shopping on the mainland and bring it over. Mm-hmm. And then it's um, there are beaches. There are rocky beaches, sandy beaches, up and downhill elevation, bogs, um, cliffs, lots of sheep going everywhere. <laughs> cows um so you're dealing with a lot of things that i wouldn't necessarily deal with living in tampa right but i also don't deal with mosquitoes over there or snakes oh okay so a little bit of a different environment it's a give and take (laughs) take. can you can you kind of walk us through the logistics of of kind of doing that so you fly into dublin you have maybe a suitcase or two Depending on how long you're staying there, so how do you organize like your groceries, and you know where do you where do you stay when you're on the island, and what's <laughs> as well as the any equipment that you'd be using? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you have to plan everything in advance for this. When you get into Dublin, you then hop on the bus that takes you out west, and when you're out west, you have to think about okay, if I'm in Galway for a night, this is where I can get the majority of the equipment. Mm. Um, if I need anything special, it has to be in Galway. Mm-hmm. But then when I'm in the small town, the small shop, the area where we go shopping uh, for groceries is like an Aldi, a little, their main grocery stores, um, also a little bit of a fancy grocery store that sells black beans. That was a oh, big one. <laughs> <laughs> so the, when you're in that town you ha- and you have to think about, okay, what might I need on this small island? Mm-hmm. And we we could purchase screens and ship them over there and pay hundreds of dollars in shipping fees and the purchase of screens, or we could build our screens. So we hit, hit up the lumber store and buy mesh and wood and construct our screens. Mm. We have to buy our shovels on the mainland. Um, anything we think we might need in bulk, too, because you have a team about 10 to 20 people for an excavation, 
you have to think about that before you go to the island. Mm. And then the ferry people are really nice in helping us move all of our heavy equipment (laughs) onto the boat (laughs) and all of our heavy groceries. And then um, we stay in either tents sometimes, uh, renting houses on this island, hostel, hotel. It depends um, on the schedule and availability on this island because it is a busy tourist island and... um, People from all over Europe and all over Ireland do visit this particular island for their vacation. So hmm. we work within that constraint as well. Hmm. Interesting. So this is this is the project you're doing for your dissertation, correct? Yes. How how long have you actually been collecting uh, this research, and then so how far along are you on your dissertation project? So I've been working with this particular community for. S- with this community for about seven years now. So this is research you did prior, prior to, to your PhD. Okay. Yeah, and whenever you do a community archaeology project, you really have to spend time with the community, get to know them, and have them give them the opportunity to get to know you mm-hmm. because you are dealing with sensitive information. So I've been at USF. Um, this is my third year here, but I've been working on this project for about seven year, eight years now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um because it was something I started with one of my professors from undergrad, and I've continued to um, work in Ireland on his project throughout my academic career. Where, where, did, where was the undergrad? Notre Dame. Oh, Notre Dame. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she already said that, Emily. Oh, was that was that on air that she said that? Yeah. In the oh. beginning. In the beginning. Yeah. So <laughs> we, get our, we get our conversations <laughs> off air and on air confused sometimes. But um, so you spent a, a, a good chunk of time graduating after an undergrad so then you stayed on this particular professor's project and and worked on this and then decided to use this for grad school as well yeah and he was he's very generous um and that's not always the case with people's projects but that is sometimes the case where you make a connection in undergrad and you continue working on the project throughout your grad school career Mm -hmm. um and it's something that, as a community archaeologist, I really value because it does take so much time to make the community feel welcome or mm-hmm. make the community accept you and feel like it's okay to share these personal anecdotes with you. Right. So is that is that professor still – does he still do this research? So is he part of your team at some point? Or? He does do this research. Okay. He does still do this research. I've just created a little niche project, a dissertation gotcha. project, okay. and part of a larger um, project that he's he organized. All right. Well, I think this would be a good time to take another music break, and then when we come back, we'll talk to Katie about what the, the future may hold in her career. Stay tuned. Hey, Bulls. You're listening to Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com, or TuneIn.com, rather, and the TuneIn app. You can learn more at BullsRadio.org. And you're listening to Anthro Alert. If you're just now tuning in, welcome. We're almost done with the show, but welcome. And if you are have been listening, we're going to dive back into our conversation with Katie, um, yeah, I, yeah, I hope all three of you have been paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> oh, which, which actually brings me to my next point. Um, you know, off off air we were we were chatting a little bit, and Katie said that she is ABD, which means what, Renee? All but dissertation. Yes. So she's uh, she's wrapping up soon. Which is awesome. Are, are you excited about that, Katie? I am. It'll be uh, slash nice dreading it. <laughs> 
<laughs> slash not writing or wanting to write hundreds of pages. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. Uh, yeah, d- don't worry. We'll ask you what your future plans are. Um, but as far going back to the the, the research, your research interest. Um, what are looking at like the future? You know, what are some future implications for community archaeology? Um, kind of uh, or help us explore that a little bit. Why is it? Why is it important? So there are a number of archaeologists who, in the 80s and 90s, um, really felt like it was important to discuss with the community what we were finding. Mm. What we're finding is relevant to their um, personal history. Mm-hmm. And so rather than just take, take, take all that information from communities, why not create this open pathway of information? Why don't we share our findings with them? Why don't we have them help us understand the past since it is part of their personal history or family history? Mm-hmm. So we get into wanting a more, um, a more welcoming understanding of the past, one where local communities have a say in what we know about them. A lot of Native American groups felt strongly about playing an active role in their past and in their in in our understanding of the past. Mm-hmm. So why don't we work with the community to decolonize the past? Mm-hmm. So anthropology has a history that um, a colonial history, colonial links, mm-hmm. especially archaeology. One of the first American archaeology excavations was by Thomas Jefferson. He was having his slaves excavate a a Native American mound. Mm -hmm. Well, why don't we share our (laughs) investigations, work with the communities, and give back to them in ways we can? So something that I've been working on is um, trying to come up with ways that the community can share this information with the next generation. So I've worked with some uh, colleagues of mine, and we created more of a coffee table type book. Mm. That is digestible, so you don't have to go read the article in International Journal of Historical Archaeology. <laughs> you can go pick up this coffee table book that has um, that's really easy to read, mm-hmm. beautiful pictures. It has video components where you can take your smartphone and expand beyond the book what's out there about this about the past and about mm. these islands. That's really neat. Yeah, so that was a fun project, but right now I'm working to try and figure out how I can create material to pass on to the teachers mm. so that the teachers on this island can um, have this material ready, an easy lesson plan where they can help the kids understand their past, their family history. Um, so different ways that people can learn about their past, but also different ways that people can engage with the past and not have it dictated to them but help be part of our understanding of the past and help us understand the past in different ways. Mm. That's a really important aspect of, of doing research and, and disseminating your research. So you, you mentioned a few things, um, you know, some projects, book projects you completed, and then you, developing lesson plans and things that you would, you would like to do. So what, what else do you think the, the future holds for you? Or you know, what is the career path, at least right now, that you're kind of visualizing for yourself? So archaeology uh, and anthropology in general, we are part. I'd like to be part of the academic institution, do research. I really enjoy teaching. I'm teaching an undergrad class right now, and that's really fun to do. It's fun to talk to students about cultural relativism, mm-hmm. gender, identity, um, race. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to teach. Um, archaeologists also can do things like CRM, cultural resource management to go and make sure that we're preserving the past, um, and th- that's done through 
um, consulting with companies that want to build a new road or if the government's building a new building. We have to make sure we have to make sure we understand what archaeology is there and what could be impacted by these developments. Mm-hmm. So would you like to um, stay at a U.S. institution, or perhaps would you like to go to an Irish institution? <laughs> have you thought about that? I have thought about that. I really enjoy spending time in Ireland. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy exploring. I have friends who live in Ireland, so it would be fun to um, work at an Irish institution. But if there's an American institution that wants to hire me, I'll yeah. do that too. <laughs> you, are you listening, Notre Dame? <laughs> <laughs> why, li- why limit yourself? Exactly. You, know, you have two countries to choose from. Why not? <laughs> uh, so... You know, one of the things you were talking about earlier was um, using historical archaeology or uh, community archaeology to reveal some of the colonial aspects of human history. Um, what I'm sure that there is at least some people who are opposed to that part of it. So, so what type of opposition or um, barriers are put up? Well, so one of the biggest barriers in the recent past for archaeology has been um, NAGPRA and opposition to NAGPRA, which and NAGPRA is the North American Graves Repatriation Act, uh, Graves and Repatriation Act. So there were some scientists that felt that when they had these collections from their excavations, whether they were Native American pots or bones or different material culture from their excavations and their research, that that was something that they should keep in their museums. Native Americans felt that that was not appropriate. You shouldn't have the bones of an ancestor sitting in a paper bag in a museum. Mm-hmm. So the scientific and a lot of um, archaeologists agreed with the Native Americans. So there was a law enacted in 1990 that forced museums and academic institutions to take inventory of their stock and contact the different Native American groups and say, like, we have this. We know it's from your... Um, your culture, your society, do you want it back? That's to put it basically. <laughs> um, some scientists did not want to have to give back that material. Um, they felt like they needed to be able to research it. Mm-hmm. They weren't done with it. Um, so they went back and forth, and they had this law that people really didn't necessarily want to give up their museum collections because maybe it was a really beautiful artifact from um, a tribe. But the tribes and the national government, as part of their, as part of a process to acknowledge the the right of the tribe to own their material culture, own the past, um, the government created this law, and museums and academic institutions worked with the various tribes um, to to repatriate, to give back that material culture, to rebury those those um, individuals who had been kept in museums for so long so that's one type of opposition like i might want to do some archaeologists want to understand bone isotopes um to understand where someone is from you can do that through isotope analysis but some people might not want their ancestors bones to be in a a scientific lab so Mm -hmm. you go back and forth with some of those ethical issues Mm -hmm. yeah there's there's a lot of things to consider and you know when i when we're talking about like artifacts in a museum i always think of you know, artifacts that are really, you know, that, you know, predate what, you know, NAGPRA and things that have laws that have kind of forced people to to repatriate things. But going back really far into the beginnings of archaeology, where European or archaeologists from the U.S. would go to different countries, excavate, say, this is mine now, and, you know, those artifacts are still in 
uh, museums in the U.S. or Europe or wherever, and you know, a lot of countries maybe maybe still upset about those types of things, or you know, they're still in museums that aren't in that particular country. Yeah, and uh, one famous case across the world is um, marbles, the uh, Parthenon marbles that yeah, are in the British Museum. That's what I was thinking of <laughs> too. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure Greece is still really upset about that. <laughs> Greece has asked for them back a number of times. Yeah, and the museum, the British Museum, has said no. Yeah, um, and I mean that's an ethical issue too, because it's just yeah. like, well, I mean, <laughs> you know, those are those are ours. You just kind of took them. We know <laughs> where they're from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think the the finders keepers rule really applies there. But what are you gonna do? <laughs> and that brings us back to the safety of children. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that that rule can really hurt feelings, kids. So remember that. Um, so we have to, to wind down the show for this week, um, even though we're having a very stimulating conversation and learning about Irish archaeology. Um, we'd just like to ask, uh, Katie, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to give our listeners or any summary or any takeaways that you would like our listeners to, to have for this week? I would encourage all students out there to take an anthropology course. Mm-hmm. Come explore archaeology mm-hmm. or linguistics or biological anthropology or cultural anthropology. And just, mm-hmm. you know, we talk about a lot of things on this show, whether it's um, history and yep. different cultures around the world. So just take an anthropology course and ask your questions and just yep. learn what's out there. Mm-hmm. Hey, Katie, what was the hook for you? What, what drew you in? I really enjoyed understanding other people when I was traveling, just seeing different um, food. I really like food. So, you know, going to the Midwest, you have a certain type of food. And then when you're in the South, you have a different type of food. And you have, like, New England clam chowder versus San Francisco chowder. So I really enjoyed growing up understanding those differences. And then I, um, when I was touring college, I took a class with – or I sat in on a class with actually a professor who's now here, um, Daniel Lundy. I sat in on one of his classes with um, a friend, with a, my sister's friend, and I loved that class. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever told him that story, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was the hook. I just loved learning about people all over the world. So did you start as an undergrad in anthropology, or did you switch? I started as a, an anthropology major as a freshman in college. Okay. Yep, because we've had some people on the show that we always kind of we always like to learn how people get into anthropology because it can be you know really straightforward or for some people it can be really haphazard and a really yeah. kind of windy journey to get there, which is kind of what happened with me. So it's always interesting to see you know where people are now and then kind of you know how they got there, um, because especially for our listeners, you know everybody might not be an anthropology major but that doesn't mean that you don't have an anthropological perspective and you just don't know it yet exactly (laughs) i didn't know i wanted to do archaeology until i was uh late in my sophomore year yeah yep so yeah i think that's uh that's a good takeaway just uh take an anthropology class and you know see if you like it if you if it seems like something that may interest you you know the usf offers a variety of different classes so maybe it's something that will interest our listeners. Renee, do you have any final thoughts? You know, if, if you take that anthropology class and it's your first one, and, and if you don't like it, I mean, think about why you don't like it. <laughs> That's true, too. I think maybe 101 classes can be a bit overwhelming because they try to give you a lot of information about a lot of different things in a really short period of time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. So some of the some of the classes that are more focused on a, on a subject may be, may be a good way to go. 
so I think that's all the time we have for this week. So um, if you would like to learn more about Katie and her research, you can find her profile and summary on anthroalert.com. <clears throat> and the podcast. Yes, and the podcast is also available on anthroalert.com. Oh, yeah. Forgot about the podcast. So, the yes, um, I think you guys know this, but we've been recording these live episodes, so they periodically are published on anthroalert.com now every Wednesday at 3. So you guys, um, if you've missed previous shows, you can start listening to those as they're published, the older shows. I think there's five up on the website right now, so you can go check those out if you would like. And that's all that we have for this week, so we will see you next week, and have a nice weekend.